You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. I have a a favorite sportscaster. He's an older guy now, but um, I just loved, I loved his work over the years. His name's Brent Musburger, and uh, he's still kicking, but he has a famous catchphrase. Every time he begins a sports broadcast, he begins with, we are coming to you live from wherever. He should be here today. Because we are coming, Midtown, we are coming to you live from Vancouver today, along with Pat. I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank everybody. There are a ton of people behind the works of this, so thank you to them. Thanks to the band. Thanks to, thanks to all of you. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is Norm. I'm one of the, the pastors of this ministry, and we're in the beginning of a series a, a few weeks in on the book of Ephesians, and so we have a lot of stuff to do today. So I ask that you take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 11 to 22 today. As you find that text, I I don't know how familiar, familiar you are with the Bible, but do you know that there is a book in the Bible named after a slave owner? The first book of the New Testament, in fact, was written by an individual that cheated people out of out of their money. In fact, the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible are written by a, by a man who killed someone in cold blood. In in fact, most of the books, uh, uh, at least a large percentage of the books of the New Testament are written by a killer too. The, the father of faith, a, a man by the name of Abraham, we'll hear about him in a, a few minutes again, But the father of faith, Abraham, slept with the help because his wife told him to. And when his wife got to a place where she resented the woman, she sent her packing along with the little child that Abraham had with her. There's a man in the Bible named Solomon. He's a prolific writer of wisdom. He wrote a book called The Song of Songs. It's a beautiful love story. Solomon had 700 wives, and he had 300 concubines. I wonder which one of them he was thinking about when he wrote the book. Solomon's dad, David, was a warrior. He killed his 10,000s. People sang songs about it. He was also an adulterer who, who had put a hit out, who put a hit out on the woman's husband when he wanted to cover his trap. Two of Jesus' closest disciples, two of the closest, wanted God God to rain down fire on an entire town, Sodom and Gomorrah-like, because they had rejected Jesus, and besides, they weren't a pure race. So what's the big deal? I could go on. I've read this book, this book, cover to cover, dozens of times, and... I've taught verse by verse through, through many of the books in it. And do you, do you know what it's full of? This book, from beginning to end, it's full of racism. It's full of classism and it's full of sexism, paving the way for murder and rape and incest and adultery and genocide and polygamy and misogyny and xenophobia. 
at the time of Jesus, there, there was a famous prayer that went something like this. Thank you, God, that I'm not a woman, sexism, or a Gentile, racism, or a tax collector. That, that prayer was uttered again and again by certain segments of the population. That's this book. That's what this is full of. And here's what may surprise you. I love it. I love it. Because one of the things that I know about our world, and I know I'm not alone in knowing this, is that our world is full of racism and classism and sexism, and the Bible doesn't hide from it and pretend that it's not there. I mean, just think about it. What have been the major talking points in our world over the last couple of years? I mean, the pinnacle of things discussed. Well, it's been racism, Black Lives Matter. It's been sexism, hashtag me too, and it's been classism as well. So much so that in 2021, just a couple of weeks ago, the largest market economy in the history of the world placed a self-proclaimed socialist as chair of its Senate Budget Committee. And, and my point in bringing these up isn't to debate the topics. I'll leave that to people who are far smarter than I am. I'm simply pointing out that they are the talking points today. So much so that some of us are tired of, tired of talking about them. So why bring them up? I bring them up because today's text gives us the remedy for them all. How do you get, get rid of racism, classism, and sexism? Well, with the only thing that destroys all divisions and places everyone on common ground, regardless of color or gender or socioeconomic status, the, the only thing powerful enough to take billions of people, rich, poor, old, young, men, women, east, west, north, south, white, black, smart, dumb, Scythian, slave, barbarian, and free, and produce one new people. What's that thing that can do that? Well, there's only one answer. The answer is the gospel, and that's what this text is all about. But before reading it, I need to give a very quick and abridged history lesson for all of us to make sure that we're all on the same page. I spoke of Abraham just a couple of seconds ago. In Genesis 12, we are introduced to him for the first time where God calls this man Abram at the time, later to become Abraham, and he said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to raise up a nation of people. Well, Abram had a son. His son was named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons who were the patriarchs of what would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Chasing food because of a famine, this smaller family, they moved to Egypt. They fall into slavery they spend 430 years in captivity. They breed like bunnies, and 70 turns into millions. They are, they are eventually set free and formalized as the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. 
the apple of his eye, his vine, his firstborn son. God promises them things that he promises no one else. Covenant promises. Promises as secure as God himself and marked with circumcision, which I know sounds strange, but was a badge of honor for them and set them apart from the rest of the world. It was good, just think about it. It was good to be an Israelite. God loved you. God chose you. God promised you. God led you. God met with you. Only one God in the universe. Creator God, almighty God, and he was your God. And you were his people. But what we need to know about that God as well is that he didn't want only to be good to them, but through them as they shined as light to the nations. So so what's the problem? Well, the problem is they didn't. First, Israel got into a family fight and 10 of those tribes broke off from the other two. The, The 10 kept the name Israel and the other two called themselves Judah. Additionally, Israel, the 10, Israel didn't fulfill their call to shine as light to the nations, but they synced up with the nations, going so far as to intermarry with the, with the, uh, with the nations, watering down the bloodline. But Judah didn't do much better. The other two, but they did maintain their purity but they got arrogant in the process and they called the people of Israel half-breeds or Samaritans after the region they had settled. Fast forward to Jesus. Like I said, a very short history, very abridged history, but fast forward to Jesus and as we drop in on the Gospels, what we have are essentially just two races as far as the people at that time considered it, two races, Jewish people and Gentile people. Gentiles sometimes referred to as Greeks. You had Jewish people and Gentile people. Gentile means nation. If you hear the word goyim today in the Hebrew, it speaks of anyone not a part of the nation of Israel. So like I said, you had these two races of of people. And tied into that was great animosity between them. Jews, Jews couldn't tolerate Gentiles and had a, a particular disdain for the Samaritans. There was, there was no such thing in a Jewish person's mind as a good Samaritan. Gentiles were simply categorized as sinners. As I explain this, and as your mind starts to think through it a little bit, where your mind should go is to, to places like apartheid in, in South Africa, or You should think of Nazi Germany or or 9-11. Think Rwanda, think think Sunni and Shiite, think think Fox News and CNN. It's that bad. That's the context. As we drop in to Ephesians 2, that's the context. I mean, just to give you a little more background, according to the Talmud, which are the Jewish recordings of, of, of their law, to give good advice to a Gentile was forbidden. You didn't eat with Gentiles. You didn't even set foot in a Gentile's home. Faithful Jews would go out of their way not to set foot in the region of Samaria. 
I mean, just think about it this way. Think, think about taking a trip to Portland down in Oregon, but hating Washingtonians so much that you, you went to Portland, but you skirted, you skirted east first to, to Calgary, dropped down to, to Montana, maybe got into Idaho a little bit, and you doubled back up and went to Portland that way because you didn't want to set foot in the state, state of Washington. It was that bad. If a, a Jewish person happened to brush up against a Gentile, an arduous excuse me, cleansing process had to take place to, quote-unquote, get the Gentile off you. You can read this on the screen, but screen. Historian William Barclay writes of, of what's going on at this time when saying that the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Jews said the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in the hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. All of this sounds horrible, doesn't it? And it is. But there's a theological white elephant still in the room. What is that? Salvation came from the Jews. Jesus himself said so to a Samaritan woman of all people in John chapter 4. So what did you do if you were a Gentile? and you wanted to get right with God. Well, what you did was you gave up your Gentileness and you became something called a Jewish proselyte, a Jew of second class, hoping to at least get some crumbs from the Jewish table. They, they were in, but they were distanced and they were looked down upon by the blue bloods. Few things depict this more so than the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was the house of God, the earthly home of God. The temple in Jerusalem was where God met with his people. It was the epicenter of Judaism. The, the temple housed something called the Holy of Holies. This was a cube-shaped room where, where God met with the high priest one day a year on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest sacrificed on behalf of the people. Separating the Holy of Holies was a, a large curtain where on the other side of it was something called the sanctuary or the holy place. And out from there, the court of priests. Only this court was a place where priests could go. Next was the court, court of men, which was reserved for Jewish men only, and then the court of of women, reserved for Jewish women only. From there, you had to travel down five steps where you came to a, a walled platform and then you went down another 14 steps and then there was a wall there that you had to pass through. When you passed through that wall, you arrived at the court of, of Gentiles. 
This court ran round the temple with all other courts and the temple itself raised above. Are you starting to see the picture? This was as, as close as a Gentile got to where God met with his people. Remember that wall that I talked about, five steps, then another 14 steps? Remember that wall? That wall was a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. About 100 years ago, two notices were discovered that had been posted on it. One read, no foreigner may enter the barrier and enclosure round the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. If you've ever read through the book of Acts and Acts chapter 21, Paul is falsely accused for bringing a Gentile into the temple. He's dragged away and they're about to kill him before there's intervention. That's how serious it was. That's the relationship between Jew and Gentile. That's the demarcation. That's the division. That's the, that's the hostility. And so with all of that as background, and that's a lot of background, let's go to our text. And as a group of Gentiles, which I'm, I'm thinking probably most of us are, unless you're chiming in from Tel Aviv, and if you are, welcome. But let's read verses 11 to 22. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise with having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, hear it, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, that's, that's the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's so sweet. So with less time remaining then, than normal, here's our outline. We're talking about the gospel today. That's what this text is about. So from our text, a really simple outline. I want us to notice first what the gospel is, second, what the gospel does, and then third, what the gospel produces. Let's take them one at a time, beginning with what the gospel is. I'm only gonna spend 30 seconds here, not because it's unimportant. It's of utmost important. In fact, it's, it's, this, 
it's, it's what this whole text is built upon, but I'm not going to spend much time in it on this point because we've spent the last two weeks unpacking it. And so if you weren't with us, please go back, double back and listen to those two messages. But I still begin this way because we are reminded of what the gospel is in verses 13 and 16. So just notice it. I know I've just read it, but let me read it again. Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's, that's the gospel. Look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. That, that's the gospel. Through the cross by the blood of Christ. That's the gospel. It's more but nothing less. This is what the therefore in verse 11 speaks of. This reminds us of the last two Sundays. The gospel is God's rich mercy, his immeasurable grace, his abundant great love. It's the substitutionary work of Jesus where on our behalf, he took our record of debt to the cross in our place and and died and rose three days later. That's what the gospel is. But what does the gospel do? That's the main emphasis of our text. So what does the gospel do? You already sang about it this morning. It brings us near. Look at verse 13. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, Norm, near to who? Well, near to God, certainly but near to each other as well. Meaning what? Meaning what? Meaning no more stairs, you know what I mean? Meaning no more wall, no more courts, no more curtain, no more threats of death, no more inferior or superior status, no more people of first or second class, all saints, all of us, All saints, all priests, all access, all of us. That's what the gospel does. It it tears it all down. That's what it does. I'm I'm an old enough guy to remember all the way back to 1987 when when President, then President Ronald Reagan gave a speech in West Berlin. At the time, Berlin was divided by a wall. You had East Berlin on, on one side, West Berlin on the other side. East Berlin was Soviet-controlled. West Berlin was free. It was democratic. The, the wall was referred to by the West Berlin politicians as the wall of shame. It was a wall of hostility. It was the symbol of the Cold War. But on June 12, 1987, Ronald Reagan gave a speech at the wall where he declared to the Soviet leader at the time, a a man named Mikhail Gorbachev, and he cried out to him in his presence at the wall, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And on November 9th, 1989, it was. Historians point to that moment as the end of the Cold War. That's our text. That's our text. Where a a colder war has been fought. Yes? 
a, a greater shame removed, a, a greater hostility destroyed, a more formidable wall torn down. The wall was torn down with the cry, it is finished. Torn down, removed, gone. But not only a wall, for a curtain was torn down too. What do I mean by that? Well, remember earlier I talked about the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, dividing it was a curtain, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, four inches thick. It was a bad boy curtain. As I mentioned as well, in the Holy of Holies was where God met with his people by way of the high priest as he offered atonement sacrifices on behalf of of the people. But why do I bring it up? Here's why I bring it up. I, I bring it up because on the day of his crucifixion, this is what Matthew records in Matthew 27. He writes, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the, and the rocks were split. Do, do you hear that? That's our text too. Through the cross, by the blood of Jesus, the court curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Why is that important? Because it was a God thing. God did this. Allowing us Allowing us access where? Into the very presence of God. The holy of holies. But there's a problem. If you are listening, you should be raising your hand going, there's a problem. What's the problem? Only high priests can go into the Holy of Holies. And we're not high priests. We're priests, according to to Peter himself, who, who declares us such. We're saints and priests, but we're not high priests. Who's our high priest? You know the answer. Jesus is our high priest. He's our sympathetic high priest, in fact. But Midtown, look into my eyes. Who are we? What have we been talking about over the last four or five weeks? Who are we? We are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are in our high priest, we have access into the holy of holies. This this is why the the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4.16, let us then, because we are in Christ who is our high high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This, by the way, is why we end our prayers in Jesus' name. Why? Because it's in Christ that we can pray to our Father. Look at verse 18. That's what verse 18 is talking about. It's a sweet, precious, tender verse. Verse 18, for through him, that's Jesus, we both, that's Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. A great Trinity text, by the way. 
but it's through Jesus. We go with Jesus, in Jesus, Jesus in us, to the Father. Every time we pray, we enter the Holy of Holies. But there's more. For not only does the gospel reconcile us with God by removing the hostility connected to our sin, it does the same with one another. Reconciliation with God, but reconciliation with every class, every race, and every gender. But how does it do that? I understand, Norm, you're saying this is what the gospel does, but how? How does it do it? Take a look at verse 15. There's the answer. Paul writes, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so so making peace. There's the answer. You confused a little bit, though? Okay, just stick with me because it's... it's, it's It's a precious truth. First off, let's just unpack it very quickly. When I read this verse, if you have a working knowledge of the Sermon on the Mount, that great great sermon by Jesus, there should be something that should trouble you by what Paul writes here. And what should trouble you is Paul writes here that the commandments have been abolished by Jesus. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, so why does Paul write here that he did? Well, the answer is because his emphasis here is on the law as a means of salvation. And that's been abolished for everyone, for for Jew and Gentile, and has put us on common ground. Remember last week, that great sermon by Pat, none of us can boast, none of us, no exceptions. No inferior or superior people, regardless of our status, our age, our color, our lineage, or gender. This is where we all stand. We stand all together at the foot of the cross. This is the gospel. This is what the gospel does. As Paul affirms in another place, place in Galatians 3, you can read this on the screen, for gospel people there is neither Jew nor Greek, it removes racism. There is neither slave nor free, it removes classism. There is no male and female, it removes sexism. All destroyed, why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what the gospel does. Which is why it should grieve us so much when brothers and sisters in Christ aren't living in unity. Which is why Jesus said, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, if you're, if you're offering a gift at the altar, in other words, you're coming into a place of worship and you are offering things to the Lord, but you remember in that moment a, that a brother or a sister has something against you, Jesus says, leave the gift. Go and make it right. In other words, there are times in our lives where unity is far more important than worship. It's why John writes in 1 John 4 that if we say we love God and we hate our brother, we're liars. 
Don't talk about your love of God. <clears throat> I've um, been grieved, and I use that word purposely, during this pandemic season to have had a number of conversations with pastor, pastor friends of mine who have told me that, that people have left their ministry over things like mask wearing or how their ministries were responding to some of the closure mandates, leaving their ministries for things like that. Please hear me. If you leave a ministry over things like that, you're not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Your gospel's too small. Paul addresses this in Romans 14, one more verse on the screen when writing this. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Do you hear that? You've got a disagreement over an item, some kind of discussion item. One person thinks that, one person thinks, thinks that. What's Paul's counsel? Have a meeting, take a vote, come to a place of agreement. That's not his counsel. His counsel is each should be fully convinced in their own mind. So if you think that way and you think that way, get really entrenched in it. Get really convinced. Get really convicted about it. And then lay it down. Why? Because our unity is to be found in the gospel. That is what is to unify us, not what day of the week we meet, not our view on masks or vaccines or end times or how we school our children or our song choices. Our unity is to be the cross. When we divide over lesser things, however convinced of them we are, do you know what we do? We build a wall, a wall that Jesus died to take down. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel does. And finally, what the gospel produces. What does the gospel produce? Well, Paul answers that in verse 15. When he writes there, it produces one new man in place of two. Don't think gender here. Think people. This is the church. This is what the gospel produces. The gospel births the church, which Paul describes as the household of God. Take a look at verses 20 to 22 again and read this. Think about this as a Gentile standing down in the court of, 
court of Gentiles, having to not be able to pass that wall of division, looking up to those courts, never getting close. Just read this, hear this from that vantage point, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We'll talk about them more when we get to chapter four. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is us. We are the new temple. Not not you, not me, we. We are the new temple. We are the place where God resides by way of his Spirit. No once a year meetings, however, A constant moment-by-moment walk, intimate walk with with God as he dwells in us. That's what the gospel produces. As I wrap up, and I know I need to, let me leave you with this. What the gospel also produces, in fact, what the gospel calls us to is to remembrance. In fact, there's only one instruction in our text, and it's the call to remember, and it comes up twice. You see it in verse 11 and and verse 12. I'll sum up those verses this way. Remember, remember who we once were. Remember who you were before. Remember who we once were, and remember who we are now. That's what we need to remember. Gentiles, remember that at one time we were separated and alienated and strangers and hopeless and godless. Remember that. But remember now that we are saints and members of the household of God. You may have been at one time a slave owner or a murderer, or an extortionist, or an adulterer, but now, the dwelling place of God. That's what the gospel is. (laughs) That's what the gospel does. And that's what the gospel produces in, in Midtown. We need to remember that. We need to remember that. But as I close, there's one final thing to remember as well. And that's the one who makes all of this possible. The the one who took the hostility. The one who was alienated to bring us near the one whose blood was shed the one who took the cross Jesus Jesus was the curtain that was torn torn in two so we could become one ah our sweet Jesus He was the temple that was destroyed and raised three days later. He he is our reconciler. He's our prince of peace. 
He's our cornerstone. He's he's our high priest who, who didn't come to offer a sacrifice, but became one for us all. Class, race, gender. That's our Jesus. Let me pray. Ah, Jesus, we worship you. We love you. Thank you for taking the hostility, the alienation, for for carrying the cross in our place, taking all of that in our place. We praise you, we worship you, we bless you, we thank you. And Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending your son. And by way of the son you sent and the work that he accomplished and by your gracious gift, your gracious gift of salvation, we, right now, right now as we pray, we're in the holy of holies. And we enter humbly, but we enter confidently because of Jesus. And Holy Spirit, thank you for drawing us to Jesus, for convicting us of sin, sin that was dealt with by Jesus. Thank you for your work in our lives, and we ask for more, more work, but more of you most of all. We want more Holy Spirit in our lives. So we love you, we thank you, we praise you. And I ask, Father, I ask that by the Spirit, by the Spirit that was sent, that you would draw more to yourself, more people who don't know you, more people who right now are alienated and cut off, who are far away. I pray that you would do a work even now, even by way of this technology, that you do a work and draw people to yourself today, right now, that it would be a day of salvation. No more hostility, none. For the glory of your name and for their joy, eternal joy and life, I pray. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.